Welcome to BIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us to explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020 vision. Great. How about yourself, Matt? How'd graduation go at King's? Oh, it was great. Uh, I mean, the day was was terrible. <laughs> it was it was rainy and and pretty cold. And you know, we have a, there's a beautiful park right outside the church where we do graduation, and it was of no value to us because all the all the great pictures and and uh, opportunity for conversation out there you normally have you had to do all that inside the church. But the ceremony itself went really really well. I mean, I, I've I've had several people who've been at King's for you know 20 years say it was the best ceremony in their time. And I would say it's definitely up there in terms of my my 12 years, um, maybe the best. So a lot of people had to put in a lot of long hours to make it happen. We had some COVID issues, just you know the logistics of doing this for the first time in three years, uh, the full ceremony and all the other events around it. So new people in new roles anyway. So it was a lot. But everyone stepped up and uh, the speaker was great. The valedictorian speech was great. You know, all the things we graded a few weeks ago, <laughs> they, would, they would have all come out as A's. So uh, and I managed to not butcher anybody's name as I had to read the names of all the graduates as the uh, interim provost. The thing I've been worried about for uh, essentially from the day that I took the position. Well done. Congratulations. So Yeah. <laughs> another year in the books. So. Well, you know, the funny thing is uh, almost the minute graduation was over, we had this beautiful weather arrive here. So we're, it's a gorgeous week, 70 degrees every day and, and sunny and bright. And so definitely felt like, OK, academic year's over and time to get out and do some things. Um, a little more theoretical for me, given my ongoing responsibilities. But uh, I know some of my colleagues, at least, are probably enjoying the, the fresh air and, and, and good weather. Well, rest is a, a good thing. So and hopefully we can get there soon here. We we have a uh, 90 degree weather pretty much every day of the next two weeks. So okay. No complaints, however. There's there's still uh water sources here. So we're we're all good. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's important. And how long how many more weeks until you have graduation? We have two more weeks after this week. So this these next two weeks we have senior theses. So we have I think 54 students who are presenting. 20 minutes of, uh, of material that um, they've memorized uh, from a paper that they wrote over the year. It's the capstone exercise here at Geneva. And we had a big event, uh, a benefit this past weekend that went, that went well as, as well. So yeah, but coming to the end and uh, just a lot, of, a lot of things happening, you know, left and right on campus, a lot of different celebrations, activities and all the rest. Every day is like a field day here. The next three weeks. Okay. Yeah, we, we know about that from our, our homeschool connections. Lots of end of year programs and choir things and and all the rest. So May is always kind of a crazy month, but you know it's it's good celebration of things that have been achieved over the last year. Or so 
Uh, meanwhile, uh, we've got only two more episodes after this week until we wrap up Aristotle. So today we're finishing up book seven, Dave. Right. So one book left after today, uh, book eight, which we'll cover, like you said, over two uh, Wednesdays or two, two weeks. I want to kind of just uh, give a transition to the last two chapters of book seven in the politics of, and, you know, we, we go back to chapter 15, where uh, Aristotle says something really important for us to frame everything that's going to come thereafter, that peace is the end of war and leisure of, of toil. So what any political community ought to be aiming for is a certain um, tranquility uh, that, that comes from hard work, that comes from virtues that would not surprise us, uh, courage, endurance, things that are uh, required for the good life need to be there as a means. Uh, but at the end of the day, the object of human life, Aristotle argues, is happiness. So virtue ought to be practiced toward the end of happiness. And here he draws a clear distinction between that definition of virtue and habits drawn toward happiness and the, and the virtue practiced by the Spartans. The Spartans were a great warrior people uh, who wanted to preserve their peace, but in order to preserve their peace, they had to act warlike in everything they did. So they never kind of let their foot off the pedal, so to speak. And that single virtue of, uh, of being courageous warriors actually distorted the, the Spartan regime. And then I think this brings into play a lot of the way that Aristotle has outlined his coverage of politics. And certainly with anything uh, political, uh, there is the uh, influence that nature exerts on the thing. So in order to have politics, you have to have human nature. Uh, but secondly, you have to have habits, right? That habits that are either good habits or bad habits. And those habits are either directed by rational principle or irrational principle. They're, they're either directed by reason or they're directed by appetite. So a reasonable or rational approach to the right habits, the, the right um, ordering of virtue is necessary in order to achieve individual happiness and to achieve the happiness of a larger community, which brings us to our reading for today, chapter 16 and 17, the end of, of book seven. And here it's very interesting that Aristotle takes an approach on questions that we still deal with in the year 2022 but he's, uh, if anything, uh, probably the furthest thing from libertarian in his approach to these <laughs> subjects. The, the idea that someone's individual liberty ought to decide how a state goes about doing its business would be a foreign concept to Aristotle. And not to say that this was a foreign concept uh, among the Greeks and in particular the Athenians, because there's always this question, okay, is, is life to be lived for the benefit of individual human beings, or is life to be lived for the benefit of the community at large? Most of the, if not all of the early civilizations answered this question by emphasizing the importance of communities, right? That these communities were organic wholes, and at the end of the day, justice required what was doing good for the community, and the individual just needed to go along uh, for the ride. Now, part of what makes Western civilization such an interesting civilization among all of the civilizations 
is that over time, the individual gains more prominence in this question. Is it the individual we care about or the society? Whereas you can still see in some other civilizations around the world that it's the organic whole rather than the individual part uh, that matters most. Aristotle is going to give something to the individual, but he's still going to kind of play very much within or think very much within uh, the framework of this, the community first uh, mentality. So he'll talk about um, the question at the beginning of chapter 16, at what age should citizens marry and who are fit uh, to marry? So he'll, he'll talk about um, how, how marriage ought to be arranged within a political community so as for its greatest benefit. And here he answers the question that you ought to have marriage for a male. I think he puts the number at around 37 and a female, he puts the number around 18, when both of them are in their prime procreative years. So the human beings, right, are brought into this world to help procreate other human beings and hence carry on the life of a political community. What do you make, Matt, as you kind of read through this kind of initial approach? Because it is very different than the way that we approach these questions today. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's, I think, the first thing that, that strikes you is that here in a book about the organization of the best city, he concludes that that book and, and really in some ways the sort of the pinnacle of, of the reasoning of that book centers on questions of marriage and childbirth. And for our purposes, other than questions about legality of abortion or the definition of marriage, the, the choice to have children, the choice to get marriage, th those questions have been universally seen, at least in Western democratic societies, as matters of private judgment. Now, you don't have to go back that far to find a, a different model. And so, you know, you think about democracy in America, the Tocqueville, where he talks about how in an aristocracy, although you still have the legal right, you might say, to marry across class lines, the social pressure is very strong not to do that. And of course, that's a, a leading dynamic in you know, Jane Austen novels, other 19th century English literature, as people either choose to follow those conventions or not to follow those conventions, and they, they bear the consequence. So that aristocratic context has at least something of the vestiges of what we're seeing here in Aristotle, whereas Aristotle, maybe it's, it's, it's legal requirements he has in mind. There's at least habits, customs, and social pressure that really you carry right up until the 19th century in a, in a Western aristocratic community. And, and the idea that these choices are not really just about you and, and what you desire, but about the community and the health of the community is one that really is, is, has, has long standing uh, within even the Western civilization, which you rightly point out, has some distinct from other civilizations on this point. But I think, you know, one of the, the, the key lines of demarcation comes in with, uh, with Christianity and with the account of individual dignity that we find really beginning in the Old Testament, but then brought into the, the broader Western conversation more in the New Testament era, uh, when, that, when that conversation is, is centered around individual human dignity, then the, the, the status of the individual over against the community 
becomes a live question. And of course, there's been a lot of debate about whether the last 200 years have kind of gone beyond a proper Christian account of individualism to a radical individualism that prioritizes subjective individual choice over everything else. That's not in the Bible. But, but people who have corrupted perhaps ideas that had a biblical foundation have moved us in that direction so that there's, you know, in our own day, a, a real rethinking of, of the liberalism and individualism that have, for the last two centuries, at least marked the political trajectory of the West. Exactly. So he's just going to carry on with, with this train of thought. And, and after talking about the, the proper age for marriage, he's going to say, okay, well, how much time ought there to be between generations? And he says, not too much time uh, so that um, you chip away at the affection that one generation might have for another, but also that uh, marriages ought not to be uh, too early, that the children that are born of uh, earlier marriages uh, tend to have more health problems. So here it's, once again, it's kind of an interesting Aristotelian take on the subject because uh, he plays the part of an empiricist, taking a look at kind of, okay, what's the natural result of this from what, what he can see of, of births from, from young uh, people. And this is going to lead into kind of discussion that makes up the rest of this chapter and then the following chapter, which is really the question of, you know, how ought the legislator look at bearing of children, the tending to children, the education of children. I'll say more about this, of course, in book eight. And, you know, here he talks about, you know, certain more um, uh, barbaric people that, um, that do certain things to their children to make them strong at a young age. So they'll throw them into cold rivers or uh, they'll clothe them lightly so as to expose them um, uh, in a way that, that makes them strong. And, and here Aristotle says, well, you, know, you have to be careful and you have to be incremental in how you bring a human being into this world and and not expect something right of that nature uh, that they can't perform. But perhaps the most interesting uh, part of what he suggests here is this is the current debate in the United States and will be so throughout uh, this summer and beyond. What about this practice, this um, practice in antiquity of exposing children who are deformed, kind of putting them out in the middle of nowhere and, and uh, allowing them to die on their own. Um, to what degree ought abortion to be practiced? Uh, and here Aristotle lands on the following. Let abortion be procured before sense and life have begun. What may or may not be lawfully done in these cases depends on the question of life and sensation. So here, Matt, work us through what Aristotle is suggesting on this front, and then we can come back to the, you know, how the debate then would have been di different than the debate today based upon this. It's not a question of an individual right to an abortion, but the degree to which the community benefits or doesn't benefit uh, by certain childbearing practices. The context is really two questions. What do you do about children who don't have the normal capacities? And then that's, that's where the issue of exposure comes in. Uh, a, a barbaric custom that you know, one of the great testimonies to Christianity over the years was efforts that were made by early Christians to save children that had been exposed. And of course, really is the sort of precursor to 
a widespread practice of, of adoption within Christian communities down to our present day. Uh, but then also the question of whether it says when couples have children in excess. And so that that's, you know, you think about a modern China or a place like that that wants to control the number of children. That's where he says that abortion is, is appropriate before sense and life have begun. Now, this is very interesting because, you know, if you read uh, Roe versus Wade, Justice Blackman dwells rather extensively on, on some of the historical data, not always interpreted correctly and sometimes very selectively chosen, but he goes back to ancient Greek practice and, and tries to make the case that abortion was generally allowed under the long scope of uh, historical uh, legal regimes. But if you look closely at what Aristotle's saying, this really ends up being, in our modern terms, a, a strong pro-life position. If we say, well, abortion has to be procured before sense and life have begun, then we would say, okay, well, life begins at, at conception. And you know, we recognize that's a, a controversial claim today in the sense that it's controverted, but it's really not controversial in any meaningful sense. Now, we can make very simple arguments that demonstrate that life begins at conception. Uh, biologically, it is unquestionably the case that you have a unique member of the species Homo sapiens at that point, uh, genetically. Uh, yeah, you know, right. And on this point, what I always mention is, you know, when you, if you go out to a store to get a pregnancy test, you're not trying to figure out whether or not you've got a cow in your womb, right? It's a, it's a human being, right? It's, it's, right. it's like testing, right, for a human being, correct? Exactly, right? So, and that, and, and the, the point at which that pregnancy begins, that test would reveal whether you're a woman's pregnant or not. Um, is at, at conception. There's, there's, no, there's no question about that. And then a second argument that, that's just obvious uh, and very Aristotelian is a teleological argument. You know, at, at what point does a process begin that in the normal course of events leads to a fully developed human being? And the answer is at conception, not before, not after. So there's really no debate about the question of when life begins and on Aristotle's terms then, with, with better science than he had available to him at the time, then I think you would say applying that principle, you would say that abortion should not be allowed at any stage of pregnancy. What's interesting, I think, is that the real debate, which, which of course, those on the pro-choice side don't wanna have, is really over whether it's okay to kill people. Because that's actually where the, you might say the religious premise comes in. I, I admit what Dostoevsky claims that if if there's no God, then all is permissible. So there's really no question that abortion takes a human life. The question is whether it's okay to take a human life. But not surprising, most pro-choice advocates don't want to defend the ground that yes, it's okay to take a human life, and so they prefer to pretend that there's some ambiguity over when life begins because that allows them to avoid that obvious moral imperative that we all know that one does not take human life. Yeah. And you mentioned this, and I think this is really kind of one of the uh, kind of neat and incredible aspects of technology over the last 15 or 20 years, just the ability to see the human formed in the womb is, I mean, I just remember from my first um, son, you know, born 29 years ago to 
what you see in pictures today at a clarity, um, just the, uh, it's just amazing. I mean, it's, uh, you know, kind of undeniable uh, or it's deniable, but it's difficult to deny uh, the human person uh, in, in that, um, in that womb. So yeah, it's, but it, you know, he'll, he'll go on here and he'll talk, well, the, the state just doesn't stop having a right to legally set standards for, coming into life and, and all the rest, but the, the state has an interest beyond birth. So the state ought to uh, tend towards the education of young children. Uh, so he'll talk about, you know, that from birth until the age of five, a uh, few demands should be made upon the child um, in terms of study, uh, let, lest its growth, he writes, be impeded. Um, and he mentions these, these directors of education within a community that would not only tend towards the physical um, nurturing of children, uh, but also their intellectual nurturing and, and what stories they hear, uh, what they say. So the state very much has a stake in how its children are educated and note there, its children are educated. So individual human beings are part of families, but there is, right? Something that the community holds over uh, those individual families. So very, very, very interesting here when he goes through these things. Any, anything um, stand out to you in this question of, of how uh, children ought to be reared and taken care of physically and intellectually? Well, I think, you know, given your current role, I, there's a lot here for the classical Christian movement, I think, because the underlying premise is you educate children in ways that are appropriate to their stage of development. Right? And so when you're very young, you've got to explore the world and you, and you play and you don't sit down and you take lessons and then you get to another stage and there's certain kinds of lessons that are appropriate, but he talks about certain kinds of things that they shouldn't see at a young age, right? Certain kind of content that's inappropriate for somebody at a, at a younger age is appropriate at an older age. And, you know, the details of that might vary and be dependent upon his cultural circumstances, but, but the overall idea is one you know very very familiar to those in the classical Christian movement that we recognize that children at different stages of development have uh, different inclinations, uh, different abilities, different things that they're ready to be exposed to and capable of processing. Other things that they need to wait. And if you do this well, then you're you're educating the person at the right stage, and and you produce at the end of all this somebody who's, who's well-educated and, and ready for the next stage of life, you know, beyond that K through 12 education or beyond other post-secondary education. Um, and so I think the overall orientation of Aristotle is one that um, is very helpful in, in framing the kinds of questions we should ask when we take up those big issues around what students should be taught and when. And the key here, and this is where uh, Aristotle's lesson, I think, is just amazing for us um, in the year 2022, is that those who direct education, quote, should take care that young are left as little as possible with demeaning presences. So in that time, um, Aristotle would talk about, you know, demeaning human influence, you know, someone who was a servant or a slave who might teach the child, you know, something you know, off-putting, uh, but but here, right? There's right. There's the ancient expectation, right, that someone, right, who was a slave, you know, wasn't a citizen, and hence uh, might be a, a bad influence. But you you could think of um, 
kind of contemporary equivalents of that. You think of the internet, you think of social media, you yeah. think of those demeaning uh, enterprises that, that kind of shape not only the soul, but shape the physical habits uh, of children. Um, we at Geneva just are instituting a, a year prior to kindergarten called K-PREP because so many of the kids who are five years old now haven't kind of developed those kind of hand-eye coordination skills that would allow them to hold a pencil or to do those things that you're doing as you're beginning the, the early stages of learning. If you're used to swiping, and, and for those of the mm. audience, take a look at a three-year-old and their ability to swipe through a screen <laughs> with their finger, that is actually preventing them from using their fingers and their hands in a way that is most conducive uh, to their later learning. So um, we kind of, we're, we're trying to, in many ways, help deprogram or teach kind of new um, uh, tactile skills uh, to students so they can actually hold pencils, um, have attention to uh, a lesson, an idea, um, think through a concept, understand a word, understand pronunciation, those things that that are so uh, essential to early learning. So uh, there's definitely quite here that is apt to the present day. So on to book eight uh, for uh, the next two weeks as we finish up Aristotle's politics. Thanks very much, Dave. Okay, so we're gonna close the show with the grade book. And so at the top of the show that uh, spring had arrived in New York just in time as we finish up the academic year. And so today we're gonna grade some good spring family day trip type of activities. So not, not quite summer vacation yet. You know, can't take a week off or two weeks or whatever and go go somewhere exotic. But if you have a nice day and you got a little free time, maybe on a Saturday or you know, a little holiday, Memorial Day or something like that coming up, what can you do? So I'm going to give you three options here, Dave, get your thoughts on these. All right. So historical site visit. That's probably easier on the East Coast where Things are 300, 350 years old. I mean, there, there are things here that are a couple hundred years old, but it's not as bad as California, where kind of it seemed like the oldest thing was from 1950. So there were, <laughs> other, than the, other than the missions, yeah, exactly. Um, there, there wasn't much there that was historical, but I think it's great. I think we, we've, we've gone to the Alamo and, and uh, I'd give that a, a solid uh, B. Uh, I think that uh, those are really good things uh, to do. I think they're, the great activities for children to think that uh, there were things that happened in the past that helped produce the the present. So yeah, strong B there for historical site visit. I agree that it's, it's a great spot. It's, it's nice. It's outside. It's fresh air. The only difficulty I find is you don't always get the buy-in on the historical piece (laughs) running around on the open field, the battlefield. That's, that's pretty fun but then reading the signs or, you know, kind of trying to engage the historical stuff. Sometimes that can be a little bit of a battle. So um, I'm going to give that a, a B as well. All right. Second option. Baseball season, of course, begins in April. So gives you a chance to take a trip to the ball game. I would say that the younger they are, the harder the, the ball game is because while you may want to stay nine innings, yeah. they, may, they, they want to stay nine outs. And right. like, is it, is, it, is it done yet? So, um, you know, I, I was found, right, that, you know, that that beginning of the game, uh, when you're just looking out over the field, that first kind of half an hour when you sit down and you grab your hot dog, that 
that that's great. And even they're kind of excited about it, uh, but then they get to, you know, the actual, okay, so this is what I'm going to do. I want to sit down and watch. Now, maybe if they're like, I mean, you were very much into baseball and probably scoring the game and, and all the rest, you can kind yeah. of stay with it from beginning to end. But I, I would say that for most kids, it kind of starts as a B and moves towards a D rather quickly. So I'm going to give a, a C plus. Okay. I know that's, that's a, a heretical, you know, saying that to you as a baseball fan, but. No, I get it. I get it for sure. I mean, minor league games, there's so much entertainment between innings. I think sometimes the kids can get more engaged in those also because it's just a smaller scale, you know, at 6,000 people, 5,000 people, you're so close to the action and you kind of hear more of the sounds of the game and, and all that. So, yeah, I think, I think that can be a good option to go to the minor leagues. We've done that uh, in, in Harrisburg and other places over the years. We went to Fenway three years ago to take the kids to their first Red Sox game. And, you know, you, I mean, you, you dream about that. You plan that. You can't wait. And then it's a wet day, cold day in April, and everyone's freezing. And we're, you know, in one of those seats that doesn't face toward home plate. And if you did face toward home plate, there's a big post <laughs> right there blocking it. And the people in front of us were always getting up in the middle of innings, getting food rather than watching the game. So, yeah, and, you, and you paid $380 for the and, fourth. And we paid a lot of money. Yeah, it, it was it was not exactly the way I pictured it. So they could like, you've got to take us back a better day, dad. So I'm, I'm glad they want to go back. <laughs> that, yeah. I, that's a victory. You know, my son and father and I went to a game a couple of weeks ago, opening weekend with the Yankees and, and Red Sox had a great time. And, uh, you know, now that Caleb's old enough to score, it definitely kept us in the game and had, had a fun time. But yeah, I think that's, it, it's one of those things that on paper, probably grades a little higher than the actual experience, but I can't give it up. You know, we gotta, we gotta keep at it, keep going to ball games in the spring and, and summer as the, as the summer unfolds, I'm going to give it a B uh, aspirationally. All right. Lastly, I think it's more like maybe up your alley, uh, the lake or the beach trip. Well, that's an uh, easy one uh, here. It is uh, already, as I mentioned earlier in the show uh, in the nineties every day. So you, it's a requirement that you go, you head toward uh, water <laughs> Yeah. for your sanity and um and around here which is kind of uh, was surprised us when we first visited um south texas five years ago there's just a lot of great water spots um mostly rivers um you um, a day at the beach in texas is a definite f um you know going through muddy brown oily water on the gulf is just not my idea of a good time <laughs> uh maybe a california spoiled me but uh Yes, uh, but the rivers here, um, this great river runs through it, um, a city called New Braunfels called the Colmau, that is the shortest river in Texas, uh, and I think the most enjoyable river in Texas as well. Cuts right through the center of town. You get two hours out um, on the water, hmm. you know, swimming in, in fresh water, uh, and uh, uh, as long as you can get a parking spot, uh, it's free. And uh, my idea of a good day uh, inexpensive kids get outside, get in the water when it's hot. So that, that, that would be an A for me. Yeah, no, that's great. I think, you know, spring up here, you're probably not getting in the water unless you're really brave or you've got several extra layers on, but to be around the water and you know, maybe take a little walk around a lake or that kind of thing. We've got some nice spots nearby that we can go to. I'm going to give that one an A as well. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. Thank you as always for listening. 
Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can contact us at democracyinamericaday at gmail.com. Look forward to talking to you next week. <laughs>